This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, I'm Dan from Shares and I'm joined this week by Tom Selby from AJ Bell. So I'm delighted to welcome you to a very special Money and Markets podcast as we've reached a major milestone. It's a bit tricky to celebrate properly at the moment with lots of parts of the country in lockdown, but we thought it was only right that we get back the woman who has been here since pod one. So today, fresh and raring to go after having her first baby. I'm delighted to say Laura's back. Hello, Laura. Hi. Hey. I feel like fresh maybe overselling it, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> or Laura, this was meant to be episode 100 which is why we've dragged you out of the playground to be here but we snuck in a u.s election special on monday so i'm afraid it's episode 101 <laughs> what right i'm flipping my desk i didn't come out officially for episode 101 yeah i'm sorry about that but it, i thought it'd be good it's good to get you back on so um if you could just tell us everything that you know about finance investing and um you know retirement planning in the next 30 seconds it would be quite helpful to us sorry um what's what's finance what's this thing? <laughs> <laughs> how's, how's it been laura what's the what's the what, what's the warm thing you've learned from having a baby that you didn't know before you had a baby god i've had no prep for these questions um, mainly that i can't think on the spot anymore because i have to be brain permanently the other day i couldn't remember the name for supermarket so it's going to be a good podcast, I think. I think we're going to have some grade A content here. <laughs> I think it's going to be an absolute belter. Um, as always, <laughs> we've got a packed agenda of stuff to get through. Um, we've got one fund manager dumping holdings that aren't ESG friendly enough, the introduction of Retirement Corner, and a special interview with David Cornell focusing on investive investing in India. Um, but... First, it's a bit of a triple celebration this week. So we've got the 101st episode of the podcast, passing that century milestone, the return of Suits and the birth of a baby, of course. And we might have a coronavirus vaccine by the time the year is out. Way Very, very exciting <laughs> news, potentially. So this was, of course, the big news, overshadowing even the bitterly contested US election that's obviously still being contested as we speak. The early results from the world's first effective coronavirus vaccine showed it would prevent 90% of people from getting COVID-19. Now, Boris Johnson was quick to manage expectations in a subsequent TV address, and there's clearly quite a way to go before we to return to a life that resembles anything like normal. But how have markets reacted to what is obviously a pretty significant development, Dan? Oh, wow. I mean, it was it was game on Monday. It was uh, absolutely incredible movements we have not seen in a very long time. And I should say nearly on the whole positive movements as well. So stock markets were rallying big time. So this is uh, I'll give you some, put it in context. So um, looking at the major indices around the world. So in France, the the, the CAC 40 was up um, nearly 8%. The FTSE 250 or, or sort of the mid cap companies in the UK was up uh, just over 5%. Similar movement in Germany with the DAX index. 
FTSE 100 was up 4.7%. But actually, it was the, in, in America was quite interesting. The S&P 500 was only up 1.2%, and NASDAQ actually fell 1.5%. So here, it's um, what, you, what you saw was all the stocks that have been doing well during sort of lockdown conditions um, were suddenly being dumped. And all the sort of losers that had struggled, uh, particularly in the travel and leisure sector, were absolutely racing ahead. So complete reversal of kind of the playbook that's worked this year. Now, the US indices are, are chock-a-block full of tech companies. And tech was actually something out of favour here, which is a, it's not slightly strange because some of the the reasons why they've the, the shares in tech companies have done so well this year is because the world is sort of increasingly moving towards digital uh, usage, whether that's in businesses or how, how we order goods. And I don't think that's going to change even when the vaccine comes. Um, but I think what happens is that tech companies are very highly rated and the market is now taking the view that they can potentially find um, a lot cheaper companies on the stock market that could now offer growth that they didn't think they would. So if you think that if we, if we potentially do get a vaccine soon, it does open the doors for lots of businesses to start to repair their earnings again. And so th- this is naturally where markets are sort of focused. I mean, uh, uh, Laura, have you, did you, as a sort of a, a, essentially a bystander at the moment, if you're on maternity leave, did you did you see this on the news? You know, how much of it was, do you think, was talking about um, stock market reaction? Because, you know, this is really, you know, it does affect a lot of people. Yeah, it felt like it was everywhere. I was watching Sky News and they were um, covering it with a lot of fever. But did, um, so obviously after we saw that big spike and all the excitement about the potential vaccine, um, Boris Johnson came out to kind of dampen some hopes and, and stop people getting too excited. Did markets react after that? Was there a bit of a kind of fallback or not? Or did they just ignore him and carry on ploughing forward? No, I think this, you know, obviously it's, it, it, when you see a massive rally one day in the stock market, it's always a bit nervous when you see the markets opening the following day thinking, OK, they're just going to fall back. But no. So uh, in the subsequent two days, we have seen further gains on most stock markets around the world. They're very small gains, but that's actually quite a good sign. It shows I think investors are a lot more optimistic now. Um, but, you know, there, there's lots to think about here with the vaccine you know how how are there going to be enough um doses to go around how quickly will they be distributed um you know sort of i I guess you could look at worst case scenario is there going to be sort of fighting in the streets to get hold of these um these vaccines or or will there be further um trials to come actually there will be further trials to come and so we we sort of hope that there's not going to be any sort of negative data there but i think overall i think this is really really positive for anyone who's got money invested in the market. And of course, that's that's probably lots of people who don't realise it. If you've got money going into a pension, high chances are you've got a great chunk of that in the stock market. And I think this is what people always forget. You, you see, I particularly read stuff in the papers at weekends with celebrities, you know, what do you do with your money? Do you invest in the, in the stock market? They say, no, I don't understand it. Um, but I've got a pension. So, you know, <laughs> I think it's, I'm sure, Tom, when you talk about pensions and stuff, do you ever come across this when people don't really realise what's inside a pension? A lot, a lot, lots of people don't even realise they have a pension at all. I think particularly um, 
following the introduction of automatic enrolment where people are, are nudged into a pension scheme without necessarily making any decision whatsoever. I think lots of people aren't, aren't aware they have a pension. If they're aware they have a pension, they won't be aware of how it's invested or where the money's going or the fact that all of this, what, what seems like external news is going to be having uh, a direct impact on their on their finances and their, their retirement prospects. Um, I was in, I was interested in the the point you mentioned about I guess some of the because obviously everyone's very excited both from a uh, a social perspective potentially being able to get out and actually do stuff again, go and see friends and go to football matches and 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 concerts and just return to something that's vaguely like normal life. So you can understand the excitement, but there are. There are one or two potential barriers in the way, aren't there, before we actually get to the point where a vaccine's out there. So you mentioned distributing it around the country. Now, I read somewhere that the, the vaccine's got to be stored at something like minus 70 or minus 80 degrees. Is that right? So, so clearly yeah, there's going to yeah. be a logistical challenge here in getting it out to people and getting it stored at the right temperature. Yeah, I mean, it's Pfizer who who's sort of leading the, um, the work on, on this sort of vaccine development at the moment so they're, they're sort of targeting production around 50 million doses for 2020 and 1.3 billion next year so the uk's already got an agreement with pfizer to get 30 million doses so but really you, you you're going to need two doses and then i guess if you if you think about probably it's going to be potentially some waste it, it might only cover potentially sort of 12 million patients in the uk and then there's a list that seems to be going around on, on social media sort of uh, suggesting the order in which people would get um the vaccine so again it's it could be a, you know for, for lots of people this could be a long waiting time because this is also just assuming that the, the the vaccine gets approved so far it's all looking very good but i say there are still more trials to come and you know in the world of um sort of biotech pharma it, it's there's so many risks um throughout these trial stages so it, it it does pay to be slightly cautious don't get too carried away but um i think overall this is the news so far is what kind of what the world needed really so it obviously extends way way beyond simply where this is good for your investments this is good for the world getting back on its feet not to be the negative nelly here but if we've seen such a big spike in markets off the base uh, off the back of um the pfizer vaccine news if there is say in the next trial like you talked about there is some more negative news or there's a bit of a setback do you think that their markets are going to be really volatile in the other direction um well there's there's a potential for markets to move up and down here definitely i i don't think that if you know if a vaccine gets approved, I don't think that would be a, a, a big correction if there's you know potentially delays getting it out because it's it's just removing that uncertainty. You know, it's probably got you know, the biggest uncertainty of markets in in decades at the moment, really, um, about what you know when does the world reopen essentially. But I think you know you also have to think about Trump. Um, is he cl still sort of clinging on here, refusing to to sort of concede? Um, what could he do in the next couple of months before um, the end of his term? Uh, could that cause volatility markets? And obviously, there's, there's lots of other factors going on here as well. But um, I think that once you get this vaccine, if if it gets approved, um, that could potentially have another tailwind for markets. And I think that 
Um, there'll probably, yes, there'll be bumps up and down the road. And I think that the distribution thing is definitely a big challenge. Um, but, you know, just the knowledge that, you know, this, this sort of nastiness can be fixed is, um, is huge, absolutely huge. Yeah, I, I, I don't know about you two, but on a, on a personal level, I'm, I'm struggling to process this kind of good news and react to it in the normal way. I think it's been 12 months of so much bad news and having to deal with so many things that you didn't expect to deal with or or didn't want to deal with that when when you get told that there's something positive potentially on the horizon you it's i, I think i think i think my immediate reaction is whether whether it's whether it's because of what's happened over the last last nine twelve months or whether it's just an inherent britishness to to be kind of nervous that something is going to come over and 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 change it and make it not as not as positive as it sounds but everything seems to be moving in in a good direction hopefully when you talk about the negative news of 2020 you mainly thinking about the fact that i'm on maternity leave and you're not going to get to work <laughs> <laughs> it is it is almost entirely that Laura. my my life as you know is has always been very empty and now with you with you gone it's just me and pensions and that's it <laughs> so dan we've talked about environmental social and governance or esg issues before on the pod but one asset manager has taken action this week by ditching holdings that don't fit its esg criteria so who is the mystery firm and which stocks have they decided to get rid of? Um, it's Scottish Widows going to get rid of a £440 million worth of holdings that fail ESG tests. So you know, we don't have the list of what these stocks are, um, but it's come out and said uh, it's going to look at holdings in companies that drive more than 10% of their revenue from thermal coal and tar sands, manufacturing controversial weapons and, and violating the UN Global Compact on Human Rights, Labour, Environment and Corruption. So it, it's got you know, it's a clear plan here what, what fits the bill and what doesn't. Um, it's going to look at um, external pooled funds run by third managers and apply these exclusions to them and also look at um, tracker funds as well which are used by Scottish Widows' multi-asset funds. So I think it's it's quite interesting here that you know a big pensions company is making this bold statement. Um, the question is whether lots of other pension companies will do the same. I personally think we're heading in that direction. Um, so it, it, if you think if they're going to look at tracker funds and think, well, if there's companies in these uh, trackers that we, we don't want to have exposure to, essentially, I would have thought that you know that means they need to look at um, completely different indices. So that they essentially will move to funds that track environmental, social governance indices or, or socially responsible investing ones as well. So um, there's loads of money going into this space. Investors are sort of definitely focused on it. So if you think that there's a, a pool of companies that sit inside these indices and the more interest in them is just going to be driving up um, to the prices of these stocks. Um, so it, it's, it's, you can understand why people are now coming out and saying ESG related investments um, are actually performing very well. Uh, I think part of the reason is because there's so much interest suddenly going into to people who want to essentially bidding up these shares. So, 
So I recall uh, quite a few years ago, the Church of England um, was splashed across the newspapers, sort of admitting that it had invested heavily into the mining sector, and it's it's really quite hard to see, um, you know, lots of you know, big uh, organisations like that now um, you know, proactively wanting to to be exposed to. Um, you know the natural resources industry, but I think you know they are still to some extent. And I know that the Church of England says it could walk away from industries that are you know, energy intensive and, and causing CO two emissions. But you know it has added that society needs raw materials that the sector produces in order to move towards carbon neutral. So uh, you know I guess the the, the mining um, sort of side of things is a debate in itself. But I mean I don't know, Tom, have you, you as Given that you are Mr. Pension, uh, what have you come across before with with sort of big pension schemes talking about sort of uh, being more selective from an environmental perspective and governance as well to with their investments? Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. I think it's I think it's something that um, people within pensions and I think people with within financial services generally have spent a lot of time talking about. Um, I think there's been probably a lot more talking about it than there has been actually doing things. Um, I remember in my very, very early days, and I guess this cuts to the heart of the heart of the issue is that this was back when I, back in a, in a previous life when I was a journalist, I was at um, a local authority pension fund conference in Bournemouth. I don't want to, I don't want to throw <laughs> my crazy life at you guys, but that's where, that's where I was. Um, and it was, it was quite interesting. I think this was back in 2009, maybe or 2010. Um, and there were there was a presentation by I can't remember who I won't say it was I can't I can't remember who it was but he was uh, talking about uh, talking about the the extent to which they that local authority pension fund was exposed to tobacco and it had a very big holding I think in the, in British American tobacco and 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 his argument at that point in time and I think that was the prevailing view at that point in time was that our job is to make sure that the money's invested in a way that make that that maximizes the benefits to members and looks after the interests of members and it was his view that at the time that you needed that that stocks like tobacco were going to give investors and pension scheme members the biggest bang for their book and so therefore the this was a defined benefit scheme so the trustees of that scheme had a, a duty to invest in the things that were going to deliver the best returns for members and so I think where hopefully, and I think where hopefully that where the the conversation has has moved to now is is from this assumption that um, that if you're going to invest in ESG stuff, you therefore have to give up some returns because you're screening out some companies that might otherwise otherwise deliver, and and, and moving on to a conversation where you actually look at the fact that because a company is doing the right things, potentially it can, it can deliver a better outcome from your, from your, from your members in, in retirement. And I think we've at least moved away from this binary idea that, um, that, that you have to have one or the other. You have to either have a clean, a clean portfolio that delivers less or um, a, a portfolio that's got some stocks in that, that aren't ESG friendly that's going to get you more pension and more, more investment returns over the long term because... I, don't, I, I think most people accept now that that isn't the case. Yeah. So it's a topic we will definitely return to on the future podcast. So, Tom, just on continuing the subject of pensions, we know uh, you love this this area. So we, we, give, we decided to give you a bit of an early Christmas present. So we, uh, we'll start this, uh, this amazing idea of a retirement corner. So um, 
within Shares Magazine, we invite readers every week to to ask us questions on pensions because it can be a bit of a complicated area. So uh, we are inundated every week with stuff. So we thought it might be quite useful to extend this onto the podcast as well. So if you've got a question about pensions, you can email us at podcast at ajbell.co.uk and we'll try and answer it either on the podcast or we'll do it in, in Shares Magazine. We, we won't be able to talk about individual portfolios um and there's sort of certain things we, we can't go into um too much detail but if it looks like you'd be better suited speaking to a qualified financial advisor but um you know, if you perhaps tom let's go through a question this week you might give a flavor of what sort of things that we can address here so so what so tom for your very first week in retirement corner what is the question yeah, I feel like I've given myself a Christmas present by, uh, by introducing, <laughs> introducing this, and I think I deserve it as well. I think there should be a good jingle for this. A jingle? Ooh. Yeah, I think it's missing a jingle. Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah. Dan, don't, don't, don't come up with a jingle now. Don't do your own jingle. I mean, I could, I could sing um, if, if that, would be, that would be preferred. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll sort your one out for a future episode. A jazzy pensions jingle. Okay, so first question for Retirement Corner. So uh, this was from an AJ Bell podcast listener. So thank you very much. Um, if you already have a salary have salary a salary sacrifice pension from your employer, is there anything to gain by moving to a SIP, so a self invested personal pension? So um, it's probably worth quickly explaining what salary sacrifice is and how it works in relation to a pension before kicking into whether it's worth saving in a SIP on top of that. Um, so salary sacrifice is just where an employer and employee agree to reduce the employee's salary and the employer pays the difference somewhere else. So it tends to be quite popular um, among employers because it allows them to save on national insurance bills because the employee's salary is reduced. And employees can also reduce both their NI and income tax bills, again, because their salary is reduced in order to pay for something else. So salary sacrifice can be done in various different ways. Some of the ways that people might be more familiar with would be for childcare vouchers, um, bike to work schemes, very popular. Um, salary sacrifice can be used for work-related training. And of course, it can be used for paying into a pension as well. And it's quite a common way of doing it. So the way it works, instead of you paying a pension contribution from your take-home pay, your employer reduces your salary and then pays a difference, difference straight into your pension. So that means you'll end up with the same overall amount going into your pension, but you'll have a higher take-home pay as a result. Um, before we get into whether or not you should set up a SIP or not alongside it, um, probably worth pointing out that for some people, sorry, sacrifice won't be beneficial. So particularly for very low earners who might not get the tax relief that they'd normally be entitled to. And there's also potentially some implications for claiming benefits if you choose to reduce your salary because some work, some, some benefits you receive are based on the, the salary that you, uh, you receive. So in terms of setting up a SIP alongside a workplace pension, so if you are employed, then the workplace pension should be the place where you start in terms of building a retirement pot. That's because you get a matched employer contribution and you also get tax relief on top of that. However, 
given that under automatic enrollment, the minimum contribution, we've talked about this before on the podcast, is 8% of a, a band of earnings between just over £6,000 and £50,000 at the moment. For most people, that's not going to deliver the kind of income in retirement that they're going to be aiming for or aspiring for. Um, so for anyone who can afford to and doesn't have high cost debts that they need to pay off, uh, it might it, it might be uh, and wants to save over and above the amount set out by um, automatic enrollment. So whether that's eight percent, which is the minimum, or if the employer even pays in slightly more than that, then um, then it might be worth considering topping up their pension contributions. And if they do go down that route, then a SIP could be a, a good way to do it. And obviously benefits from lots of flexibility um, as well as upfront tax relief at your marginal rate and the ability to claim back extra tax relief if you're a higher or additional rate taxpayer as well. So if you are going to kind of top up your pension savings by having a, a SIP as well, um, how much you should really put in? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. It's a, it's, a, it's a tricky one to be absolutely sure of. So you, you first of all, people will only, be, only have a certain amount of money that they can save. They'll have different financial priorities. So it's worth writing down, uh, writing down a budget to make sure you know exactly what you can and can't afford before going ahead. As I mentioned, looking at any high cost debts you have as well um, as a very rough rule of thumb. I think rule of, rules of thumb are, are handy as long as they're, as long as they're, they're, they're treated as such. Um, often it's said that you should aim to save roughly half the age that you first joined a pension as an annual percentage of your salary in order to build up a decent retirement fund. So if you start saving at age 20, then the amount that needs to go into your pension each year to deliver a decent retirement is about 10%. If you delay until age 30, then the, you should be aiming for somewhere in the region of 15% and so on. Now, I think sometimes those figures can put people off. It's, it's, I think it's important to emphasize that's just a, a rule of thumb and a guide as to, as to how you can end up getting a, a decent sized retirement fund. And I think any, any money that you are able to save in a, in a pension clearly benefits from tax relief. You'll also get a matched contribution from your employer up until a, a certain amount set by both your employer and, and the rules. And I think people should think about saving in a pension like an investment in their in their future so you get the benefit of uh, the tax relief boost up front you get tax reinvestment growth on the way through and then once you get to the point where you retire then you've got hopefully a pot of money that will help you enjoy the lifestyle that you want when you start to slow down from from working whenever that point in time may come well brilliant so then if you if you want to ask tom pension question it's podcast at ajbell.co.uk tom is on the podcast about every other week and we will do our best to uh, to answer all those questions so thank you very much tom so a lot of people are excited about the investment opportunities in india so we sent dan off to talk to an expert about what's happening in the country he met up virtually, of course, with David Cornell, who works for Ocean Dial and manages the India Capital Growth Fund. Dan asked him about India's reputation for widespread corruption and the types of companies listed on India's stock market, among many other things. Let's listen to that interview now. Um, so, David, thanks ever so much for joining us on the podcast. So I, I've spoken to, to various companies over the years that have done some business in India, um, but they, they've all complained about saying it's a really difficult place to do business and 
um, you know, India in general has a bad reputation for corruption. Um, now, clearly that must present a problem to you as um, sort of a professional stock picker. What what can you do to try and look at a company and get them to sort of, sort of talk about this issue or uh, do, do, do Indian companies just sort of deny that this is happening? So I think it's a few different important points to make here. I think um, India does have a corruption issue, uh, as as, do, as does a lot of other uh, emerging economies. Um, and uh, so in so, so some senses, there's no, there's no difference. In fact, corruption exists in some developed market economies as well. Um, India is, is going through a massive process of change. Uh, and I would say that the economy is moving from what I would call a a patronage-based system, uh, a system where it's, you know, who you know and how you operate that gets you where you want to be, to a rules-based system, uh, which is more um, structured and, uh, and legally binding. Uh, and that shift, um, you know, has a lot of change and upheaval uh, about it because a lot of people stand to lose a lot uh, as the goalposts change. Uh, and, and, and so that there's a sort of very strong underlying theme uh, happening in India at the moment as we shift from what was a very corrupt system to what is a, a you know, a, a less corrupt system. Technology is helping that evolution happen because a lot more can be done online without the need for a government official or a mid-level bureaucrat to intermediate a process with the support of what I loosely called a brown paper envelope um, and because you can bypass all that uh, you know using technology and the prime minister and the government in India has done an enormous amount in the last four or five years to to shift that but it is a generational shift there's a lot of mindset you know this is the way it's always worked this is where it's going to work in the future so it does take time to evolve but I would I would say that India is changing you know really very rapidly um, from a corporate perspective uh, it's very important to, you know, we, we are long-term investors and the portfolio that we, we, we invest, uh, you know, turns over very irregularly because what, what, once we've found the companies we like, we want to hold on to them for as long as we can. India offers great opportunities to build portfolios which can compound at 15 to 20% every year uh, in local currency terms at least. Because of the size of the opportunity and the and the strength of the of the demographic and the low level of penetration that exists in a lot of these different sectors, you know, if you can find a mid cap company in a sector that's you know growing off a low base, you know, it can really deliver some very strong earnings for you over a long period of time. But you need to have confidence in the quality of the management and confidence in the transparency of the numbers, and you know that's that's our challenge. And we have a team of analysts and portfolio managers who sit on the ground in Mumbai. Who've been working in the market for 15 to 20 years, uh, sometimes more. You know, who have a huge wealth of experience and and knowledge about you know how the management teams fit into the broader uh, jigsaw. Uh, and 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 you know that part of our process is absolutely crucial. We don't always get it right by any means. And a lot of the reasons why we underperformed in the last uh, in the run up to the continuation vote in early this year is because we picked a couple of stocks where the governance was not great. And when the market uh, uh, lost confidence, then the 
you, you know, the, the, the company valuation derated massively. And it's, you know, you're then caught in this difficult situation of, you know, do you stick with the original view? Do you try and protect capital? Do you take the opportunity to buy more? And that's where, you know, we have to earn our, earn our spurs. Yeah. So what? So obviously, with with the India Capital Growth Fund, you, like you said, you you, you did have um, some period of underperformance. What what changes have you made? Or is, or what have you learned from um, the sort of the lessons of perhaps picking these couple of companies that didn't turn out to what you thought they would be? So I think the I mean, very it's very interesting to us that you know when we look back and we've been through a period of of trying to understand the reasons why we underperformed so 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 much for for for. for period of time between sort of early 2018 and late 2019 to understand what mistakes we made and why we made them. A lot of the mistakes we made almost, uh, you know, comes to miss uh, reading the quality of the management. I mean, very often we, we find that, you know, when it comes to forecasting, uh, you know, growth or understanding value, uh, you know, we, we, we feel very, you know, we get that right most of the time. It's, it's, it's miss representing misunderstanding the quality of management where we tend to go wrong and it's um it's also uh you know we're long-term investors but the long term is always a a series of short terms and i think we've been guilty of holding on to stocks too long uh and so we've tried to tighten up two things we have tightened up two things one is our selling discipline and two is our focus india has got six thousand listed companies um, so, you know, and everything is growing, you know, because nominal GDP growth is well, depressed today, but long term average nominal GDP, GDP growth, you know, six, seven, eight percent, you know, everything's growing. So it's a question of, of trying to find the companies that are growing in a way that, that protects the balance sheet or protects monetary shareholders. And I think um, so. So the way we've tried to focus is, is we've actually built ourselves what we call the House of Ocean Dial which is an investable universe of 150 stocks approximately. It's actually 143. And we call it the House of Ocean Dial because it's trying to send a message, you know, that these are the kind of people you would accept or you'd like to come into your home. And we screen those 143 companies through a qualitative and quantitative process. And then each analyst, and we've got five sector analysts, each analyst then covers only 30 stocks. And they live and breathe those 30 stocks 24 by 7. And the idea is to get to know, go deeper and deeper into the understanding of those companies rather than chasing the next best idea, uh, of which there are plenty, uh, and then doing not enough detailed research on too many companies. So knowing too little about too much, we're trying to focus on knowing more about less. And hence the portfolios become more concentrated because we can put our better ideas to work in greater size because we have more conviction. And, uh, and also we can concentrate on some of the non-financial issues related to governance, related to the environment, related to um, uh, uh, sustainability and so on and so forth, and bring that part of the analysis into our, into our broader understanding of the company. So, uh, so, so giving the analysts more focus, um, uh, allowing them to concentrate on, on less. And also we've put together what we call the ranking tool whereby all the underlying financial models of those 150 companies are linked into one ranking tool, which allows us to, 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 to look at what we see to be the, fair, the, the upside to fair value for each company across a whole bunch of different valuation, valuation metrics. And it helps the portfolio managers to then 
look at their look at their companies in a much more objective way. You know, if we've held on to this company for four or five years and it's delivered us great returns and we love it, but it happens to be at the bottom of our ranking tool, you know, whereas there may be two or three other companies in the same sector that are further up the ranking tool, they may have done less less well performance wise, but they're offering more value. You know, why are we still holding on to that one that we've done, you know, we've held on to for so long that's done so well? Would it be a better idea to rotate? So it's forcing the analysts and the fund managers to think more objectively. And that's, you know, actually performance has picked up dramatically, really. You know, all these changes were put in place about 12 months ago, and it takes time, obviously, for for, for change to, 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 to filter through into performance. But, but now I'm really happy to say that performance has picked up dramatically. So what, what sort of companies are listed on the, on the stock markets in India? Um, I, I think if, there's lots of people who are perhaps interested in, in Asia broadly um, may know more more about sort of the companies that, that you get in China. But are, is it is it very different to China in terms of what, what the, the types of industries that you get in India? I, I think I'd, I'd put it a different way. I think India's got um, huge uh, advantage because there is a broad range of investable sectors in India. As I said, a huge number of listed companies, not all you'd want to invest in by any means. And as I said, our, our investment universe is only 150. But if I look across the economy, each sector in the economy is well represented uh, in, the, uh, in the Indian market. It's unlike a lot of other emerging markets where it's very tech focused or it's very uh, commodity focused or it's very banking focused. India's got a broad range of investable sectors. So it's very representative of the economy and on top of that i think it i mean it's fair to say that there's enormous entrepreneurial talent in the management quality and the bench strength i know we talked about corruption but that's a slightly different thing i mean management quality and management capability and entrepreneurship is is very very strong in india and you know it's 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 not a coincidence to say, you know, if I look at the CEO of Google, he's an Indian. The CEO of Microsoft is an Indian. The CEO of Adobe is Indian. Mastercard, Diageo, uh, Palo Alto Networks, Reckitt Benkiza, you know, our Chancellor is an Indian. Our home, you know, there's a huge range of entrepreneurial talent, and and that's not just offshore. But I, you know, when I look at China, I don't know, you know. CEO of any global business that's Chinese. Now, you know, that's a pretty crude way of looking at it. But, but you know, India's got vast, vast uh, depth of entrepreneurial talent and, and some really great companies across a huge number of sectors. Yeah. I mean, it's probably worth, um, if you could sum up, what, what would you say were the key attractions of India then? Obviously, you talk about it's it's got very broad range of industries. It's growing um, a decent rate, but what you know is there is a sort of a, a, a summary of why should an investor perhaps sort of take this region very seriously and consider it for their portfolio? Yeah, I think the, you know the the point is that it's very very underrepresented uh, and very underinvested, and is in, becoming increasingly more economically relevant in a global context, uh, and that sort of um, is being fast tracked, I would say by the digitalization of the economy uh, globally. I mean, India, um, to put it in context, um, you, you know, is now the fourth or fifth largest economy in the world. Um, 
if I look at its representation in, a, in an emerging market indices, it represents about 8% of an emerging market indices and about 16% of incremental GDP growth globally. Uh, it's quite a long way behind China in many aspects. Uh, it's a long way ahead of China in many other aspects. But if I look at, if I take a simple metric like 50% of the population in India is under 25 years old. So you've got a, a, an economy where providing productive employment is generated for all those millions of people entering the working population every month. It's about 10 million a month. Then, you know, you have a, 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 an economy that is, that is driven by consumption rather than by need to save, which is, of course, the case in a lot of developed economies. Uh, where the aging population is is um, is a huge sort of drag on economic growth, and similarly in China, which is, you know, uh, uh, kind of whether it's the one-child policy or whether it's the aging population doesn't have those 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 natural advantages. And if I look at India's uh, GDP per capita, it's around twenty three dollars twenty three hundred dollars ahead, two thousand three hundred dollars ahead. Very important to get to two thousand five hundred dollars ahead. That's the inflection point, where, generally speaking, the percentage of your monthly income that's spent on food is you know sorry food absorbs a large percentage of your monthly income but once you cross that $2500 a head then your your consumption uh, of your percentage spent on food doesn't change but any incremental income starts to 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 to, to be driven into into buying uh, you know some some whether it's a tv a car, a university education, whatever it is. Now, um, China's around six and a half thousand dollars ahead, so it's it's kind of been through that journey. India's just on this inflection point now. Um, but what's interesting, I think, is that again, the kind of digital consumption infrastructure is all set up in India, and India's been, you know, consuming a lot online as a consequence of COVID, and COVID's fast tracked a lot of this, uh, this the, these trends. You know, so I think once it crosses that threshold, you know, this kind of consumption is going to going to be very supportive of economic growth. Well, perfect. Thank you, David. This is absolutely fascinating. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Not at all. So thanks a lot for tuning into this week's special. Well, it was the 101st episode of the Money and Markets podcast if you've enjoyed this week's podcast and want to leave a positive review please do so wherever you get your podcasts and as always please send any thoughts or ideas you have to podcast at ajbell.co.uk thanks very much and we'll see you again next week see ya bye before you go please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of aj bell or shares magazine the podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.